Welcome to Career Tools. This week, massive workload increase response. Questions this cast answers are, how do I do two or more people's jobs? How do you decide what to do after a big change in workload? And how do you handle communication after a big change in workload? If you're one of the many managers who's been promoted into leadership due to your outstanding performance as an individual contributor, congratulations, you've earned this. Wait, what? You mean no one told you that the skills you spent your entire career honing would now collect dust while your directs do the work you love? And now you're in a role that frankly can't be that hard because it's not like we're going to train you to do it. Or are we? If you feel thrown into people management without a life raft, the Effective Manager Conference is for you. We help subject matter experts become the managers they weren't quite sure they could be by providing a step-by-step, actionable process for being people leaders. Visit us at manager-tools.com forward slash training to register today. So some time ago, we put out guidance for managers about what to do if their team is suddenly overwhelmed by extra work, whether from layoffs or a big new sale, which means like lots of people got you know, uh, lots of people get extra work because we've got to make the, you know, we've got to fulfill whatever that was. And all of a sudden, everybody feels like they're doing two jobs. The majority of massive workload increases uh, happen due to staff cutbacks or layoffs, right? A company lays off a division, and then there's like three people from each team go, like a percentage of each team goes. And there's a lead up where everybody feels at risk, and the tensions are high. And then there's this kind of everybody goes, the people that are going go, and there's this kind of relief and kind of survivor's guilt, this so much emotion. And then you're doing two people's job. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm not sure that that's, I wanted this outcome, right? right. Um, and there's lots of opportunities for negative emotion and negative behavior like carping and second guessing and anger and frustration and just just general negativity. Those are real feelings, they're justified, but it doesn't mean that you verbalize them or allow them to color your professional judgment, right? It's easy for to let emotions change your behavior. And this is one time when you don't want to do that. In fact, like <laughs> 99 times out of 100, you don't want to do that. There is a way to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the long term, it can be a good thing. It's a, it's a good thing to, to be forced to grow. Uh, and we're just going to try and talk you through some ways of dealing with this situation, whether it's a positive one or a negative one. The actions are the same. So, Sarah, tell them what the actions are. Our actions are, number one, remember professional subordination. Then make a list of everything that you are responsible for. Create some priorities. Communicate frequently and delegate to the floor. And before we begin, if you are a manager of a team who is experiencing a workload increase as a result of a reorganization or a new sale or layoffs, there is a cast over at Manager Tools for you. It's called How to Handle a Massive Workload Increase. If you just type workload increase into the search bar on the website, it'll find it for you. So the first part is remember professional subordination. So what's that? Well, in our guidance, professional subordination, we talk about murdering the unchosen alternative. And what this means is that while we can and we should make a case for a given course of action, um, a decision to be made, 
we have an opinion, or we may want to suggest an idea, once that ultimate final decision has been made, all of those other previous ideas, which were considered at the time, are now moot. No action is taken towards them. Right. So if there's something, you know, your boss says, okay, give me some ideas about how we should manage questions coming in from this new customer. And you say, well, I, I don't think it should go to someone's email. I think we should have a, you know, one of those email boxes for the team. And somebody else says, well, I think I can handle them because I don't have enough work. I, you know, I have some space. I have some capacity. I can handle them. And then somebody else says, yeah, but if you handle them, then, you know, we don't all get to see what the issues are and maybe we can suggest some things. And your boss in the end says, no, this is what we're going to do. And at that point, everything else disappears. What you suggested, what your colleagues suggested, what anybody, everything else disappears. And it's just that decision that your boss made for the team. Absolutely. Whether you were a supporter of the path that was taken or you were a a strong supporter of a completely opposing decision. As part of the larger organization, your obligation after that decision has been made is to lay any differences aside. Once an action has been taken or a decision has been made, and you must act on the decision chosen without regard to your previous opinions, whining and complaining There's no place for it. There's just not. It's pointless. It's just not helpful at that minute, right? And frankly, the more complaining you do, the more time you're actually spending taking away from progress because you're not making any forward progress at that point. Whining, complaining, being angry about the decision, as you kind of said a moment ago, Wendy, having an emotional response to it after the decision has been made won't get the work done. The only thing that will get the work done is working. Yeah. I'm thinking back and trying to work out. If I ever whined or saw someone whining, heard someone whining, and the decision was changed, and I can't think of one in the 150 years I've been working, uh, (laughs) whining just doesn't change anything. Once a boss has made a decision, whether you think it's a good one or not, it's done. And you might as well start getting on and working out how to make it work. Absolutely. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Exactly, right? Uh, So make a list of everything that you are responsible for. And this is not just the list of everything you're responsible for right now, but everything you're picking up as a result of somebody leaving or this extra work that's coming in from a new customer. So if somebody is leaving just because they're leaving and that role isn't being replaced or because they're leaving because of layoffs or you are getting new work as a result of a sale, what you need to do first is get your hand, your head around all of the extra tasks you're going to do and all of your current tasks. So, so when we say make a list of everything you're responsible for, it's not what you're responsible for right now, it's what you're responsible for after the change. And if you can get this task done before your colleagues leave, if it's a leaving case, then try and do that. It's way easier to have somebody talk you through responsibilities than it is to try and guess or try and work out from whatever it is that they leave for you what those responsibilities were. And it can be difficult because if people are leaving unwillingly, then there's emotions and tensions and they don't want to talk about it and all that kind of stuff. So it can be difficult, but it's really important to try because it's so much easier it's so much easier if you get the information direct from them 
before they leave rather than in some other form after they leave. Absolutely. And there's an absolute temptation not to do this step, but rather to focus on the tasks that you're hearing the most about in the moment. Once that person's left, there's all sorts of people who come out of the woodwork and are like, oh yeah, so-and-so used to do this for me and I need it now, 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 now. Exactly. All sorts of fires are popping up all over the place. That's right. And we all know that the squeaky wheel is the wheel that is going to get the grease. However, in order to be successful, you're going to need to take a different approach, a more logical approach, one that's thought through. Now, you may have heard of Eisenhower's Matrix. Visually, it's a two-by-two matrix or a box that's divided by one horizontal and one vertical lines to make four boxes within that one box. Right. If you had a square birthday cake and you were cutting it in four, that's what it looks like. Absolutely. And if you have a license, you're going to be able to see a picture of the four-by-four matrix in the show notes. You can see it. You can print it off if you want to doodle on it. Absolutely. Now, if not, you can just draw a box yourself. While you listen to us explain it, it'll probably give you a better mental picture to wrap your head around the explanations. To label the boxes, to the left of the bottom row, you write not important. And then above that, to the left of the top row, you write important. And then across the top, above the left-hand column, you write urgent. And above the right-hand column, you write not urgent. And now all four boxes have two designations. They're either important or not important, or they're urgent or not urgent. Most of us work in the urgent column. So there's, there's there's two lots of work there, right? There's the urgent but important and the urgent but not important. And what happens is most of us work in the urgent column and we work at whatever is top of, top of mind, whatever's being shouted about loudest, whoever is the squeaky wheel, whoever's asking for something, that's the work we work on. Now, if you're working on unimportant work, right, and you get to design, you get to say what's important and not important in this scenario, right? We're, we're not talking about talking to your boss right now. So this is you thinking about the work and the tasks that you are going to do and whether you put them in the important or not important role. If you're working on unimportant work and there is anything in the important row that you're not getting done, stop doing it now, like right now. However loud someone is shouting, if it's not important, you should not be doing it, right? If there's important work to do. All the important stuff needs to get done first because it's important. And when I say shouting, the shouting <laughs> is figurative, right? Hopefully nobody, hopefully. nobody, hopefully no one in your organization actually shouts at you. Did work for somebody who liked to shout, shouted on email as well as on the phone, uh, but it's rare. So when I say shouting, it's figurative. If it's not urgent and not important, you shouldn't be working on it at all, right? Exactly. And that's the thing that lots of us work on as a procrastination or as an avoidance of doing the difficult thing. It's like, I have to do my filing, (laughs) but I'm not doing like this thing for my boss, this chart or this Excel thing that I can't work out how to do it. So I'm just kind of, I'm just going to avoid it. If it's not urgent and not important, don't work on it at all. 
Absolutely. And taking an inventory is an exercise that makes you focus in the important but not urgent square. The more work that's in this square, the fewer fires you will have. For example, we'll use Susan, a procurement executive, for example. It's her job to liaise with a bunch of different departments and buy whatever they need according to sets of rules that are are laid out by the organization. Now, one of her colleagues is laid off. Now, though, Susan has her colleagues, customers, as well as her own customers. Now, let's hope that that colleague left Susan a handover document with names, um, contact information of all those clients, what they needed to purchase, and potentially a rough status. That would be ideal. (laughs) Let's hope so. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That would be ideal. So Susan could just start working on whatever seems most urgent. But as she's working on item number one, item number 33, which was important but wasn't urgent at the time, is gradually increasing on the urgency scale. Now, a week into the job, Susan may have gotten all items one through four 100% complete, but now 33, 15, 28, and 42, who've been smoldering the entire week, are now urgent and important and have thus broken to fire. Right. And doing the inventory allows you to work out which tasks are smoldering and to work proactively to prevent them catching fire. So what you do is you start with your list and then you call or meet everyone who is owed something from you and your ex-colleague and you explain, this person has left, I'm going to be completing the tasks These are the notes I have. She said, these were your contact details. This is what you needed. This is when you needed it for. This is the price. And this task relies on some other task. You need to find out specifically what needs to be done, by when, and what relies on that task, Mm -hmm. right? Because there is a big difference between a task upon which a customer contract relies and purchasing sweetener for the staff restaurant, right? Right? (laughs) Right. If you don't buy the steel that makes the cans, that makes the Budweiser, but you got sweetener in the staff canteen, you got your priorities wrong, right? It was urgent. (laughs) It was urgent. And probably people were yelling about it, or not yelling, but people were grouchy about, like, I haven't got any sweetener in my coffee, you know, despite the fact they could go to the store down the street or bring their own. But it's the kind of thing that people get upset about. Mm -hmm. You have to decide. In order to be able to make the decisions about what is a priority, you have to know what everything is, and then you have to know what relies on it, and then you can start making decisions. Absolutely. And meeting or speaking with those internal customers is important. And we all know that it is faster to email and that you have a ton of things to do at this point. But Meeting and calling people does two things. It makes the next steps easier and it starts a relationship with those people because people are just far more likely to give you a little bit of slack, a little bit of forgiveness while you're picking up the pieces when you do something wrong or you miss a deadline. If they know who you are, it's much easier to get angry over email because you have zero relationship with this individual. And there's also a podcast for that uh, called Jumpstarting Internal Customer Relationships. 
that'll give you more guidance on that specifically, how to approach that initial conversation. So now you have a list, you're going to create some priorities. So you can start making some decisions. Don't worry if a few things come in after you've made the list. Your list will never be comprehensive. You'll never get everything first time around. But once you've done this task, it'll be easier to slot them in relative to the urgency and importance of the tasks you have. So if you've got a list of 100 things and three come in, you can work out, wait, wait a minute, this one's more important than 48, but less important than 46. So I'm going to put it in there. And you want to look at the list and establish what's a priority based on upcoming deadlines or potentially even the role of the person asking for it, things like that. For the first couple of weeks, you're going to work on those tasks exclusively. Now we just contradicted us. Yes, exactly. We just completely contradicted ourselves. Yes, you're absolutely right. We did say that we want you to work in the important but not urgent square as much as possible. And now we have completely changed the story, right? But here's why. You need to get a little bit of breathing room at this point. If you're only going to work in the important but not urgent square, you're going to have a stream of people coming to you wanting their tasks done. And you won't get to those which are likely to catch fire in the next two weeks. It's such a short time frame so that we can get some peaceful time in which we can start to work more proactively. You're trying to get rid of that those constant interruptions and the things that are, you know, like if you take over on Monday and somebody needs something by Wednesday, you can guarantee they're going to ask you Monday morning, Monday afternoon, Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday morning, again on Wednesday morning, again on Wednesday morning, and you're not going to get anything done. So the idea is to get all these urgent things, these things that are nearest to catching fire out of the way, because then you get a little bit of peace and quiet so that you can start to work more proactively. And there won't be like some bright line when you've done enough urgent work that you can suddenly work on your longer term work or start to get through. Yeah, it won't be like you, you're like, oh, I've done one to 33 now. I've got person peace and quiet. That's not how life exactly. works. But maybe it's more likely that you'll suddenly find, oh, nobody's wanted me for like 45 minutes. Hey, I have had no emails for an hour. And you get an hour and then you get a couple of hours uh, and maybe you get an hour two days later, but gradually that time will increase until you start to feel in control of your workload instead of everyone else controlling you, which is what you feel like in the beginning. Absolutely. And then the last part, communicate frequently. It's not like a broken record. Yeah, yeah don't, don't we say that every time? It's like communi communicate and network, not the two things. Exactly. The more you communicate about what you're doing and why, the less angry people will be, the less shouting there will be. They'll know what you're doing. Communicate even when nobody is asking you to communicate with them, right? Somehow that's a revolutionary thought, although it really shouldn't be. If you communicate with people in a proactive manner, fewer of them are going to come and distract you based on their schedule, and it'll be more focused on your own schedule. Now, in other guidance, we've talked about our recommendations, about how frequent these types of communication should be. I would say the bare minimum on this, once a week. Now, depending on the task frequency, it could be once a day or, or once every five minutes. It just depends what the task is um, in general and who it is as well. And you know you're getting it right when you can communicate ahead of someone coming to you for an update 
Right? So if you know George asks you at 10 a.m. and 2.30 and 10 a.m. and 2.30 every day of the week and you send him something at 9.30 and he doesn't contact you at 10 a.m., you're winning. That is your you winning. Won. <laughs> you, you, can, won. <laughs> you can judge your success in communicating by just marking a piece of paper every time someone asks you for an update. If somebody has to come to you and say, hey, where's my stuff? You write that down or you make a mark, whatever, however you're going to count it. And in the beginning, there will be 10, 20, 30, 500 marks. But as you get better at communicating, as you take control of the workload, and as you start to communicate more proactively, the number will go down. And as long as the number is on a downward trajectory, you're getting it right. You're not going to go from 100 to zero. You're just not. But if you go from 100 to 90 and from 90 to 85 and from 85 to 75, you're getting it right. Mm -hmm. And this communicating frequently also means updating your boss, even if they've not asked you to update them. It's such an amazing idea, right? Why would we communicate with people who haven't asked us to? When I wrote that, it blew my mind. I was like, wow, that's like, as we said earlier, the most revelationary thought, and yet it really shouldn't be. Exactly. That's the thing. You want to send an email as frequently as, again, you feel appropriate, which to your boss is probably daily, but follow the set of rules that we set out above. List the tasks, where you are on them, to give your boss a heads up on what's going on. Your boss, because it's such um, a period of turmoil, right? They, they don't probably, they're not able to handle all of their own duties. They likely also have a bunch of work. And update emails will be extremely helpful to them. One last thing on their list is following up to make sure that you're doing the things that you should be working on. Exactly. Right? Even if they don't read them, even if they don't seem to pay attention, they're going to help you by at least providing yourself a sanity check. And if you have to list out all of your tasks, you're going to come across a task or two that you've missed something on. It's just a good review for you. And again, you're getting out ahead of your boss having to follow up with you and instilling that trust in your manager that you've got this. That's such an important message to send. Last section is delegate to the floor. So by week three, probably, you'll have started getting a handle on the work and given yourself some breathing room by reducing the fires. And if you're in this situation and you're in week five and you still don't feel this is happening, don't worry too much. Like week three was something that from our experience, week three is when we started to get the hang of it. And people that we've talked to, week three starts to be the place where you start to get the hang of it. But it's not always. It depends what's happening. So don't feel bad if you're on week five and you haven't got there. But you will get there. And now you can start to be proactive. And one of the things you're going to be proactive by doing is delegating to the floor. And delegating to the floor means stop doing some things, which people find incredibly scary. But it's okay, (laughs) really. There is a podcast called Delegating to the Floor for Directs. Uh, You can find it on the website. In short, what you're going to do is prioritize your list and then start cutting from the bottom. So if you have 100 tasks and number 100 is the least important, you don't do 100. Um, And the lower the priority, the more likely the task is to be cut. And almost certainly they'll fall in the not important and not urgent square of the Eisenhower matrix. Absolutely. Now, we don't just stop doing things. 
because <laughs> the consequences that everybody worries about if they stop doing things happen if you stop doing things. So what you have to do is get your boss's agreement that you're not going to do the task. And you want your boss's agreement for more than one reason, right? You want it for a couple of reasons. First, you may not have prioritized the list in the same way that she may have. So that's important. Talking about the list gives you a chance to amend your list to reflect your boss's priorities. And again, many of these priorities are new to you, so you might not even know where they should fall. And second to that, you want air cover if and when someone from the organization asks you why that task isn't done, right? Because I've spoke to my manager uh, and my manager said that I didn't have to focus on this anymore. However, if you think it should be a priority, please go ahead and whatever, talk to Wendy and, and see if Wendy would like us to put that back in into the plan. You just don't stop doing things. Yeah. But once you've had that conversation and your boss has agreed, you just don't do those things. You betcha. Which is such a nice place to be. A sudden increase in workload can be really stressful and really overwhelming. We've been there and we've worked with thousands of people who've been there and we know what it's like. All you can do is take small steps each day to get it under control. And you can do it. Everybody does it eventually. Nobody breaks from, I mean, there might be a point at which you get, you and your boss say, you know what, this is, this is ridiculous. This just can't be done. You have to be working through it in order to find that point. So keep going. Don't whine. Don't complain. It won't help you. Just work the steps. And I know we mentioned a lot of other podcasts in this cast. If you go to the website and you type in uh, massive workload increase and you find this cast, uh, which is the massive workload increase response, on that page, it'll have all the other podcasts we mentioned so you won't have to search for them. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you, Wendy. Bye, everyone. I hope that was helpful. We'll be back next week with more guidance.